And good morning, everybody. We are continuing in our study from the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Last week, we sort of set the scene for this banquet room in that first of three sections in chapter 5, talking about how we must not profane God's holy name, and that helped us get the setup. Last week, we saw how King Belshazzar had profaned the name and the character of God by using some of those temple vessels that had been brought from Jerusalem, and he used it for his own personal banquet, but he also praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and some of the pagan gods that they would have worshipped at that time. So that's when he saw the hand writing certain words on a wall, and he could not decipher what those words were or what they meant. So he called in all of his advisors, his wise men, they were perplexed as well, his nobles were perplexed, and then we're going to see how somebody with some wisdom and maturity and tact comes into the scene today, and that's where we're going to pick that thing up. So let's pick it up at verse 10, Daniel chapter 5, verse 10, if you have your Bible, I hope you do. I hope you have it open so you can follow along, and uh, every time I will refer to certain things, you'll have it right there and you can refer to it with me here. Chapter 5, verse 10. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune-tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with the divine knowledge and understanding. He has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So the first thing we notice about this woman is that she is wise and courageous. I put the word out on Facebook in our closed group page this last week, and uh, Stephanie Pike mentioned something to me. She said that the same time that she and her husband, Stephen, whom you had in the exhortation just prior to this, they were going to be moving to Michigan from Canada, and there was a couple from their church, and they had been attending with them in that particular congregation, and that particular couple was being sent out as missionaries. But a wise woman said this to Stephanie. She said, there's no difference between them, the missionaries, and you. Look at yourselves as being sent as missionaries too. And Stephanie said that made such a huge difference in how they thought about their travels to Michigan. And certainly they have been acting as missionaries in this particular region. So I'm grateful for that woman who was wise enough to give them that advice. I'm sure all of you probably have some elder, courageous, tactful women in your lives as well. For me, it was my grandmother. Maybe you had a grandmother like that. I don't know. But we see that kind of wisdom and tact in this queen mother. She gave the same kind of wisdom by entering that banquet hall without an invitation that Queen Esther had shown when she entered the king's chamber without an invitation. Because back then, in this particular era and in this culture, 
if you entered the king's chamber and into his presence without being invited, it could be game over for you. So obviously, these two women were courageous, but they also were tactful and wise enough to know that they had earned favor with the king. And so it was not likely that he was going to be doing away with them. So same thing that we also saw with the wise and courageous people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They both said some things that were given to us in history through the documents we have now as the inspired word of God, the Bible. Esther had said, asking people to pray for her because she knew she had a difficult task ahead of her. She said, well, I'm going to try and go and see if I can save the Jewish people from destruction. So I'm going to go to the king and see if I can change and influence him in some way to bring about a positive change. And if I perish, I perish. She knew that she was their last hope, and she knew that her life was on the line by doing what she had to do. Same thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were saying, our God is able to deliver us, O king, but if not, if he chooses not to deliver us, we're still not going to worship your pagan gods because we still serve the one and only true God. So isn't that that courageous, if not sort of attitude that shows real trust? And I'm grateful for all of these examples in scripture. Well, the queen mother also being very, very wise. Who was this queen, by the way? Well, we know for sure that she was not Belshazzar's wife. She was too old for that, for one thing. Some scholars argue that she may have been the wife of Nabonidus, a.k.a. Nebuchadnezzar III, which means that she would have been Belshazzar's mother. But it's not mentioned specifically that she was the mother of this young king. I don't think so. A more likely educated guess would be that she had been the wife of Nebuchadnezzar II, a.k.a. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, and the timeline seems to fit fairly well with what's going on here. She still could have been alive after that particular king's death in 560 BC, and there's a clue in verse 2 of this chapter that lines up more closely, I think, with this educated guess. So, more likely, I think, Nebuchadnezzar II's wife. You'll see a little bit about that clue as we get through that uh, passage. She was both gracious and tactful. The queen mother who enters this banquet hall without formal invitation shows her concern for the king. And so she enters with all the right uh, poise and says, don't be alarmed. May the king live forever. Don't look so pale. In other words, all is going to be set right. I have something to help you, O king. So we know that this queen has knowledge that may come to fruition in helping the king in a way that only God could help. And she recognizes that there's a supernatural ability in Daniel, even though she doesn't necessarily ascribe it to being Yahweh. She says, in a sense, there is somebody who can help you, O king. Now, how would she know that? Well, because if she was the wife of King Nebuchadnezzar II, the predecessor of this king, not the father, then she would have seen what was happening in that specific case too, because she would have been privy to all that information. And that's why she would have been able to say, he has the spirit of the holy gods, because she knew that only God could have given Daniel the insight that he was given when it came to her specific husband. Neb too had appointed Daniel over the wise men back then, which raises another good question. We understand that uh, he was not present when he was calling for all these people in the younger king, King Belshazzar. So we're going to look at that too in just a second. Parenthetical note, let me pause for just a moment and say that 
a lot of people would point to the founding fathers of America and they would say, well, not all of them were actual believers in Jesus Christ as the son of God and the savior of the world. No, that's true. Many of them did not. And yet in quoting from them and reading the history of how this country was formed, we can see that many people still relied on the Bible as God, God's inspired word and knew that there was a great deal of wisdom. So even though there may be times when people don't necessarily call themselves a Christ follower or a Christian, they can still recognize that there is something bigger and supernatural at work in the people presented in the Bible. And I certainly see that true with many of the founding fathers in America. Well, Babylon's queen mother clearly understood that there was a higher power at work with Daniel as well. So she may have been on her way as a seeker or a questioner as to what that power might be or who it might be more than we might have given her credit for. So the king's response to the queen mother's suggestion. First, let me ask this question. Why hadn't this king called on Daniel right away? If he knew that Daniel had been put in charge of all these wise men earlier on. Well, Daniel would have been older by this time. And evidently, this younger king was too busy making history to want to learn from history. He was showing his arrogance and his unwillingness to learn from the people who had gone before him. So I don't think that Daniel was actually in the same position of prominence with Belshazzar as he had been 20 years earlier. Um, there was a guy that I remember back in Phoenix when I was working part-time in a church, still going to college and I was a minister of music. There was a young man who was really arrogant. He reminded me of Belshazzar in some ways because of his character. He seemed unwilling to take advice from people. He didn't want to learn from other people's mistakes. He was the kind who had to learn the hard way. He needed to go to the school of hard knocks <laughs> and he needed to have first person experience before he would actually learn his lessons and be humbled. And actually he was treating his wife poorly. He fell into an addiction with alcohol and that sucked up a lot of his time and energy and money. And he was spending more money on alcohol than he was spending on diapers and food. And so he just wasn't providing for his family very well. I wasn't the senior pastor in that church, but my pastor who was the senior pastor had many counseling sessions with this young man. And there came a point at which my boss, the senior pastor had told this young guy, he said, if you don't humble yourself and learn that you need help, and if you don't get yourself into rehab, you're gonna lose everything. He saw the handwriting on the wall, but he refused to heed it because he would say everything he needed to say at the moment just to get back what he thought he was going to lose, but he didn't really mean it. Because after his wife came back to him, after being separated for a time, he went right back to his drinking, right back to his abusive ways, and he eventually did lose everything and his wife left him and divorced him. So sometimes people like King Belshazzar and like this guy that we knew back in South Phoenix, they just refuse to see the handwriting on the wall and heed what needs to be heeded in the way of a word that says, if you will turn from your ways, if you will repent, you can avoid this catastrophe. But these guys didn't. So let's look at the king's response now to the queen mother's suggestion starting with verse 13 of chapter 5. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I've heard that you have the spirit of gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. I find it really interesting that the king did not know all this. He should have. 
Uh, verse 15, my wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. We're number three. We're number three. It's funny that he didn't say the second highest like we've seen in some other cases, but that's beside the point. At any rate, I see that this guy's being manipulative again. And in a sense, he's always trying to use power and money as leverage to get what he wants. So he's basically offering riches and a promotion to Daniel so that he can get what he wants, rather than seeing that maybe this guy that his queen mother has suggested uh, might just have some power that has nothing to do with riches and fame and prestige, but it really has to do with God at work, that Yahweh is trying to get something across here. No, he still doesn't get it. Some will seek temporary help, but only when they are up against it. And we certainly see that in this case with King Belshazzar. I see that as that young man who was in South Phoenix, and I see it with this king. If they're really in a, a fix, they'll call out to God and they'll try to bargain with him. But there are those who try to invoke the name of God only so they can get what they want, namely to maintain their power and control. But eventually they are going to see the handwriting on the wall. And it's amazing how some people, especially power mongers, when they get desperate, they will do desperate things to maintain their power and control as happened in this case. But Daniel shows how we must accept God's judgments, in his case, Yahweh, because that was the God that the Jews knew at that time. That was the name that they knew him by. So now we're getting to verse 17. We must accept God's judgment. Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. This is where the story gets good. And you're going to see why in a few minutes too, that God gave Daniel some specific insight and used some of his previous education because he had been learning the language of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and Aramaic, which was the primary language in that region, and he knew Hebrew as well. So there were some things that came into factoring here that showed how God was using Daniel and his shape, his spiritual gifts, his heart, his abilities, his personality, his experiences, and his education, all to factor in to what's happening here as God calls him uh, into play. Now let me start with verse 17. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Daniel was simply recounting what we had learned actually happened to that specific King Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 22, you are his successor, O Belshazzar. 
and you knew all this, and yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them, while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is what the words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsin means divided or cut in half, literally. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And note, we actually do know that verse 31 uh, is accurate because of those cuneiform tablets that were uncovered in archaeology. So we have the Babylonian historical records that show us that the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon specifically in October of the year 539. More validation. So we're going to see some character coming out here character that shows that Daniel has been starting to bring into his own heart and life the character of God himself, because God's glory is being revealed through Daniel to others so that people can clearly see that God is the one who needs to be exalted. Well, he has patience. He waited patiently for his turn to speak. He had humility. He said, no, you can keep your rewards. I'm not doing this for reward. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And he showed respect. He says, nevertheless, I will read and interpret what you've asked me to read and interpret. Some real wonderful character qualities, and you can tell why he kept getting promoted at different times in his life there in Babylon, because he just displayed the characteristics that people want in a good leader. Daniel referred to Belshazzar's father, thinking that the younger king might have learned from the experience of other people. And we can see that there were some things about the predecessor of King Belshazzar and all the things that were happening in the line of succession of these kings leading up to this younger king, who was a real upstart. You'd think that if he had learned from his uh, father and predecessor and some of the things that they had dreamed about, I know these stories would have been shared. They had to have known about them, but he just refused to learn from others. And so he was going to have to learn it the hard way. So Daniel shows how the king had profaned God, Yahweh, by uh, praising these gods who couldn't see or hear and couldn't really do or think anything at all. And then, then he interprets the handwriting on the wall. And this is where I think it gets so fascinating. And I hope you're up for a study on Aramaic and the language of Babylon, because here we go. He interprets the writing, mene, mene. Notice that it's said twice in a row, even though it's the same word, and then tekel and parsin. Only three words, but the first one is repeated. Aramaic is written from right to left, as is Hebrew, and it's very basic. And most of the time, in sort of a shorthand, people would write without different kind of markings. 
Now they would only have consonants. And so in Aramaic, you would only see the consonants and then you would need something to help you know how to interpret whether the consonants were supposed to have vowels and if so, which vowels and where they were placed. It was a very cryptic kind of a language. It's kind of fascinating too, because I knew a guy back when, I know a guy back in Ann Arbor, who was a member of our church and uh, my pastor and I had a couple of coffee dates with him. He was studying at the University of Michigan to get his doctorate in Aramaic and Chaldean. He was learning these ancient languages because he wanted to be able to read some of these things like the cuneiform tablets that I keep referring to. Neat guy. Well, there were certain dots that would be placed around in different locations of these consonants. And depending on where you placed the dots, you would know which vowel to use and what tense that word might be in. Uh, this particular example is just simply from the vowels themselves. They're called vowel pointers because they were like a map and they would just point in the direction of where you would need to place the right thing. So that as you were reading that, if they had the vowel pointers, it would really change the meaning of certain words or become a phrase, in fact. Here we see the nouns that these would have stood for. So there are three levels of interpretation and Daniel knew all three. If you had put the vowel pointers, which this, these probably did not have, they probably had no vowel pointers, which is one reason this king didn't have a clue what he was looking at and neither did their wise men. But because of Daniel's Hebrew knowledge, he had uh, an extra layer of understanding here. These vowels uh, would help them become nouns if they used them with the noun pointers, and it would become mina, mina, shekel, and a half shekel. These would be different kinds of coins. And the mina, mina, if they're put together like that, would have been numbered, which shows what happens when you become verbs with these things. They would become numbered. And then the shekel, which is also a weight, because they would use the shekel to weigh other money, or you would weigh a certain amount to know that it was a shekel. So it would be numbered and weighed and divided because the half shekel was literally cut in half. So you can see how the derivation of the noun becomes the verb, depending on where the pointer is. Isn't this fascinating? I just love Aramaic. And then the phrases. This is the phrase that is growing out of that as you start to use a different set of vowel pointers, a third layer of interpretation. It says, he has paid out, you are too light because of the weight, and Persia, because there was a different word of Parsin that was very similar to, but slightly different because of these languages that were sort of a hybrid between Hebrew and Aramaic. So you would say, he has paid out, you are too light, and Persia. Sounds very odd, doesn't it? until you get to the very finality of this whole thing. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And he would say, basically, God has found you wanting because he has weighed you, and now your kingdom is divided, and it's going to be given to somebody else. Anybody recognize these people and that particular phrase, that quote? was from A Knight's Tale, the movie. And now you know that there are the original source of that specific quote. And I found a couple of other quotes, or at least paraphrases of scriptural things in that movie. Very interesting. I'd have a nice chat with the director someday. There are two types of proclamations, and this is interesting. This is what helps us start to understand the difference between prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature. And it's going to help us understand when we start to get to those latter chapters that a lot of pastors shake their head and they think, oh boy, I love 
preaching through chapters one through six, you know, maybe one through seven in Daniel. But man, we start getting into some heavy duty pointing ahead in history stuff in Daniel. And I'm not sure how to handle that. Well, we can handle it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. And we are going to handle it. But there are two types of proclamations. And we see a lot of these in the Old Testament. One is the prophetic proclamation. This one has a chance for somebody to heed it, repent, and return to God. Basically, it says, if you'll do these things that God is saying that you need to do, if you'll turn from your pagan gods and quit worshiping these other gods and turn to Yahweh and put him first in your life and make him exclusive, then you can avoid this catastrophe down the road. But if you don't, these will be the consequences. So that's the prophetic kind of proclamation. But then there's the apocalyptic proclamation. And that basically says, uh-oh, you've gone too far. You had your chance. You were given warning after warning. God told you what you were supposed to do. You still didn't do it. You have been unrecalcitrant. You have not repented. You did not return. And therefore, you are about to get what was promised to you, your reward. And usually it was destruction. The apocalyptic pronouncements to this specific king, for example, means that you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your kingdom and your life. And that was true in both cases. But we should know as well that as we are looking ahead in history, all these were foreshadowings of a great big apocalyptic event, which means that we know that we'll be able to expand the breadth and depth of all that to, so, to show that at some point, God is actually going to be calling in all the chips. He's going to be saying, okay, you've gone too far. The whole world has gone too far. I'm going to close the book now. All those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life you're going to be in entering into my presence forever, but real justice is going to be done once and for all time for everybody. So it's going to become the gigantic end of the world event. Here in the Old Testament and in this specific case, it's a foreshadowing of that bigger event. Isn't it good to know that God had the plan and he's continuing to give us warnings and the prophetic pronouncements so that every one of us can see that and see what's coming and say, oh, I want to repent. I want to be on the winning side. I want to be in heaven with God forever. And I don't want to wind up like King Belshazzar. All right, let's see where we are. We know that King Belshazzar's fate had truly been sealed because this was an apocalyptic pronouncement that showed up in these four words, actually three words, but the two were repeated on the wall. Your fate has been sealed. Your kingdom has been divided, has been given to the Medes and Persians. A funny little true story and a parenthetical note has nothing to do with this particular biblical passage, but the pastor, John Babry, over at Fellowship Baptist, where we're going to have our in-person worship this afternoon, he is uh, half Persian. One of his parents is full-blooded Persian, but his other parent is actually from Sweden. So instead of being a Medo-Persian, Medo as we read about in the Old Testament, he says he's a sweeto Persian. So when you see him this afternoon, tell him that we studied about some of his ancestors today. Okay. Now, meanwhile, back to the biblical study at hand. Uh, your kingdom has been divided and has been given to the Medes and Persians, verse 28. And then we can understand what I just mentioned a moment ago, that later apocalyptic proclamations refer not to the end of a kingdom, but to the end of the world. And that's the ultimate apocalypse. Your fate has been sealed. Your kingdom has been divided, literally had been cut in half. As we know, his father had built that new palace down south. He had moved into Tima. 
and it would later be called Babylon as well. But uh, this younger king, Belshazzar, had been left up north. So it literally had been divided, and there were two kings. They were two generations apart. But it had also been divided because of their allegiances, and we can understand because of the decadence and thinking that they had become so arrogant that nobody could possibly enter into this city and do anything. Well, we found out last week that certainly wasn't true. And so that very night, this apocalyptic pronouncement became very true for Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, and he was killed because of the uprising that was coming in that we looked at last week. The king's reaction. I was curious about this. I had some questions about it, and these are question marks that I'm going to have to continue to put in the margin of my Bible and into the little booklet that I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. But why would the king react the way he did? Because Daniel had said, keep your rewards, keep your robe, keep your gold chain. I don't need a, a promotion. I'm just fine. I'm only doing what God called me to do. And then when he tells him, oh, king, your kingdom's divided and it's going to be given to somebody else. This is your fate. I don't know that I, as a king, would have reacted that way. But he followed through on his rewards to Daniel. It seems odd to me. Why would that be? Well, some have said maybe he was resigned to his fate, and he thought, I can't do anything else, so I might as well go ahead and just follow through on that. That seems like a real weak, logical argument. That just doesn't make a lot of sense for me. I kind of think, based on the scoundrel, conniving, manipulative character of this young king, that he was still trying desperately to hang on to power any way he could. And he thought, okay, I'm going to bargain with Yahweh. I know that if Yahweh is the one who's actually written on the wall and trying to show me what's happening here, maybe if I reward his servant, maybe God will still give me a second chance. It seems like these power mongers will do everything they can. They get desperate in their attempt to cling to power, especially if they know that they're very close to losing it. And I think that's probably more in keeping with his character. That's what I'm going with anyway. I'll find out when I get to heaven for sure, but we'll see. Daniel was faithful and truthful. What we see, though, is that regardless of what the motivation was for the king, God used even a strange motivation. He does this all the time. He will use somebody else's sin and even their wrong motivations to get done what he wants done eternally because of his purposes. And he does so here, and it just boggles our minds because we see a lot of rascals in politics and in power. And God can still be in control because he is still sovereign. And even when people make boneheaded decisions and do things that make us shake our heads and think, how could you possibly make that law? That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't ruffle God's feathers because God is still, still sovereign and God can still raise up the people he needs to raise up to accomplish what's going to happen eternally for all of his people. Well, Daniel was faithful to Yahweh. He told the truth. And in this case, Yahweh rewarded him and kept him alive. And he kept alive all those other wise men that Daniel still had influence with so that we could foreshadow what was coming 550 years later, 600 years, I can't remember, somewhere right in there. I think by now it would be about 550 uh, when Jesus comes on the scene and the three wise men we don't know for sure if it was three. Those uh, people who came from the East, those were the descendants of these Magi. Contrasting here, we can see in chapters four and five. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter four, and then last week and this week, we're looking at chapter five. Chapter four, we can see that Nabonidus, Neb three, 
humbled for a season, and yet he finally came to his senses. It was like he was in temporary insanity. And anytime we depart from God's word and forget to trust in him, it is like being temporarily insane. We've lost our minds if we're thinking that we can do better than God. We can't. He came to his senses and he repented and he regained not only his life, but he regained his kingdom as well. But then we see that contrasted with this um, Belshazzar who remained unrepentant and he lost it all. Not only did he lose the kingdom and eventually lost the entire kingdom to the Medes and Persians, which fulfilled that original first dream of the earlier king about the statue that Babylon was the head of gold and that eventually that next one coming in there would be the Medes and Persians, the Persian empire. Certainly this is that time. That's when this is happening. So it took a number of kings in the Babylonian empire before that first uh, dream came true. That gives us hope though because we know that even though we know that the end is coming, it may be several generations to come yet. A lot of people have made long, uh, some very bad predictions about the end of the world. We need to be cautious. And as we get into about chapter seven of Daniel, I'm gonna show us scripturally why we should not try to read too much into the future events like that, because all these are supposed to be looked back on so that when these things happen, we're ready for them. It's supposed to give us readiness and faithfulness, but we should never use them as uh, specific predictors, especially of people or specific years. So be cautious about that. You'll hear a lot of strange prophecies put out there, especially on YouTube and social media these days. Just delete them. Look to the word. You can trust the word. We're gonna look at it together as the word, but some of these folks that come out with these crazy predictions, they're false prophets. And God dealt very seriously with false prophets. And I think he will do that today because people are gonna to have to be held to account for some of those false prophecies. And we've had a ton of them in this last year. <laughs> well, what we do know is that Daniel was a man of his word. And we know that Daniel foreshadowed something that would happen in the future. And we learn from King Belshazzar exactly what Jesus words for us later on. When Jesus says, for what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Didn't do any good to Belshazzar. He had so much power. He was in that wonderful, huge, beautiful city of Babylon that thought it was like the Titanic. He thought it could never sink. <laughs> Nobody could ever break into this place. It's indestructible. All they had to do is dam up the river upstream and the soldiers walked right in on the riverbed under the walls and took Babylon. What good will it do for a person if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? But here's the good news. This is the gospel. If you humble yourself and accept Jesus' gift of grace, which he offers so freely, you get everything. You get all that future, the eternal future with God and all that he offers to the joint heirs of Jesus. And that's what all this is pointing to. Every story in the Old Testament, and especially in this particular book, the prophetic slash apocalyptic book of Daniel, they keep pointing us to the truth that God has been trying to get everybody's attention in history so that we can accept the grace that God gave us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you accepted that grace? Let's pray. Father, this is good news for us to see that 
we have all this evidence in your word. And if we just keep reading it, we see again and again, like a neon sign, a huge arrow pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, something that we'll be able to celebrate in just a couple of weeks. And we understand how powerful that is because you kept pointing everybody to return, repent and return to the true God, the God who created all this and not to place our trust in anything else, not in ourselves, not in pagan gods, not in inanimate objects or in power or anything. But we can trust you. We can lean the weight of our lives fully on you and we can trust you implicitly. I pray that everybody who hears this will do that, that they will trust Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and to walk in his counsel, to let him be the guide of their life because he's the one who knows everything because he is God. And we thank you that you offer yourself through your Holy Spirit who indwells in every believer and you seal our salvation through your spirit when we ask you to be our God. Thank you for doing that for everybody who believes. I pray that everybody who is within hearing of this will do just that, that they will repent of their sins, ask for forgiveness, get the forgiveness, thank you for it, and walk with you. Thank you in Jesus' name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.